Hello, everyone. This is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a one-woman Stephen King book podcast where I take my background as a university fiction teacher and strive to apply educational concepts to illuminate these wonderful Stephen King titles in light and in shadow. And today, I have a lot of help with said illumination from my extraordinary guest. Friends, get excited for the runaway train car that is today's constant reader interview. Of course, I don't mean that in a negative context. It's definitely a sophisticated affair, minimum shenanigans afoot. Perhaps it's more of a runaway dinner car. But today's guest couldn't be more knowledgeable, regal, delightful, and professional. He is, in one word, splendid. Mr. Richard Shepard is the host of the Constant Reader podcast as well as the Hollowed Histories podcast. He is an OG King fan, well-versed in the written output as well as the cinematic adaptations. He is a terrific Stephen King resource with a plethora of academic credentials, connections. He's as cool as can be in the realm of Stephen King fictional analysis. And as we speak, I'm currently readying my resume to be his personal Dark Tower coach as Mr. Shepard needs a little assistance with Roland and the gang. My loves, this interview is everything. It is pure delight and complete joy, and I feel a lot like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh, where I just want to sprint and smash into Richard with a barrel roll hug, because he is such a diamond of a guy. Without further ado, let's head into this delightful conversation with Stephen King podcaster, Richard Shepard. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this exceptional constant reader interview today with my honored guest, Richard Shefford. Hello, Richard. How are you? Hello, Kim. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. It's a pleasure. So thrilled to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. For those of you out there who aren't familiar with Richard's work, Richard, can you introduce yourself and what you're up to in the world of Stephen King? Uh, well, yeah, thank you. I host, produce, and edit a podcast called The Constant Reader Podcast. We've been going for four years now. We originally started out as a specifically academic look at Stephen King. So we had professor of English literature, professor of film studies, and so on and so forth as my guests in my studio at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. Uh, when the lockdown hit, we started to broaden our horizons a little. And we started getting in uh, writers, filmmakers, super fans, other podcasters to kind of really get a, a consensus and a brief, a broader understanding of the appeal of Stephen King to, uh, to pretty much everybody. Oh, my heart. I'm just so moved by your work <laughs> because it really ticks a lot of boxes for me as an academic. So I'm so thrilled that you're involved in the community and doing the show. All right, enough gushing. Let's get to some questions. <laughs> Tell me about your personal history with Stephen King. How old were you when you read your first title? All that good stuff. Well, that's a, it's a good question. It's a question I often ask my guests too. And there seems to be a unifying factor that most of us started reading Stephen King uh, when we were probably too young to be reading Stephen King. For me, I was probably around nine or ten. And my mother had joined one of those book clubs where you buy a lot of very cheap books and then they send you books every month until you have to uh, really get on them to stop it. 
And so <laughs> she got Pet Cemetery and Christine. And I think I still have them in the book club edition somewhere. And I really loved Christine. And I really wasn't sure about Pet Cemetery. That's one I had to reread a couple of times and, until I got it. But I loved Christine. It was it was sexy. It was funny. I could see like the kids in it were like kids I wanted to be. Arnie and Dennis was like a friendship that I wanted to have. And all the kind of the music references and just the Americana of it. I was really obsessed with you. I, I grew up in Oxfordshire in a very tiny little village called Ducklington, which sounds made up. It sounds like something <laughs> out of a uh, a League of Gentlemen sketch or a parody of English literature. But no, it's a very tiny little village, and it was the complete antithesis of the fast cars and cities and even just small things like ordering a pizza. Seemed It's something we wouldn't have done. And I read about these kids doing it in this book, and I thought, that's really cool, you know? You get a pizza and you've got a girlfriend and you've got this car. All of this was completely outside my uh, my sphere of influence at the time. So, I, yeah, I, I read that one and I loved it. And um, I think that my mum had to go with me to the library to get out more books because I wasn't able to take out these books on my own. And I kind of read the early canon, I suppose you'd call it. Salem's Lot, The Dead Zone, Firestarter, Cujo. It, of course, I was obsessed with it. Carrie which is another one I didn't really get at the time, but I've come to love over the years. And ever since then, I, it's just been one of those things that uh, no matter what job I'm doing, no matter how much money I'm earning, no matter what I'm, no matter what's going on in my life, if there's a new Stephen King book, the day when that gets released, that's, that's what I do on that day. I go there and I get the hardback edition. That's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's been a lifelong obsession, I would say, from 10 upwards. Oh, Beautiful. So great. I know he really is so good at mapping our lives with his work, which is incredible when you think about it. Oh, yeah. And that's what I mean by like coming back to certain books. Like the first time I read The Shining, I didn't really like it uh, because I thought it was going to be a, a fun, haunted house, scary ghost book. And it is, but then I didn't really get all the long digressions about uh, Jack Torrance's alcoholism or Wendy Torrance's fears about a marriage. But when I grew up and lived an adult life, I kind of realized that is the true horror of the book. The horror of the book is, you know, your life is maybe teetering on this knife edge. You, you might fail no matter how talented you are, no matter, you know, what you do, you might be completely screwed, basically. And that was really scary to me as an adult. Absolutely. I think the humanity horror, <laughs> the horrors yeah. of humanity within King's work is just that universal language we can connect to. Like, oh God, <laughs> <laughs> we're all able to stumble that violently. Okay. Yeah. And it keeps on giving. Like I said, I, I can't wait to uh, get a bit older and read something like Insomnia and really appreciate the fragility of um, <laughs> being a senior citizen or do McKee, like that kind of thing. And just like really appreciate that being that point in your life and all the things that can still happen to you, you know? Absolutely. Oh, you, you said do McKee and that's a Pavlovian <laughs> response for me. That is one of my all time favorite Kings. So uh, happy to hear Edgar Fremantle's journey mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Richard. Now that we've kind of established that beautiful history with King, are you someone who has read everything, given the fact that you've mentioned that on a new King release day, you're there? 
or have there been a couple that you just haven't made it to yet? Uh, yeah, I think at this point in the proceedings, I think I should uh, confess I am a Dark Tower skeptic. I started, I read The Gunslinger a few times with the good intention of going on and reading the rest of it. And it's only recently that I really actually enjoyed reading The Gunslinger. I think it's quite a, for a small book, it seems very long. It's a very turgid book in lots of ways. So I am going to make an attempt to read The Dark Tower. I just need somebody to come on the podcast and probably kind of like a coach just to keep on saying, keep on doing it, keep on going, keep reading The Dark Tower. <laughs> so it, it is something I will tackle at some point. So anything after the drawing of the three, I, I'm fairly ignorant on. And part of that is just a somewhat irrational prejudice for fantasy novels. It's not my genre. I don't really appreciate it. I tried to read The Hobbit once and it just bored me senseless. <laughs> I don't mind George Martin and a couple of others, but no, it's just, it's not something that appeals to me. I haven't read Faithful, the book he wrote with Stuart Onan about baseball, even though Stuart uh, has been on my show before and is uh, a lovely chap. I haven't read that book yet. The Gwendy novels, I still haven't finished the trilogy. Again, uh, Richard Chisma was also on my show and is a lovely chap, but I haven't read the last one yet. But I think I've read all the, all the big ones. All, all, oh, and Fairy Tale. But that's just a recent gift I got from somebody, so I'll have to make time for that. Well, what about you? What do you think is the biggest gap in your uh, Stephen King reading? Because I know you're going from it from a different angle and kind of getting the underrated ones done first. So out of like all the big name books, which one do you think is uh, the one you're, you're kind of missing? Well, my King journey started with his later works. Full Dark No Stars was my very first title. And so I kind of hung out in the 2000s, 2010s. And that's where I spent the most amount of time. So early King is hugely not visited by me at this time. The 70s, I haven't read Carrie, I haven't read Cujo, I haven't read some big ones. So I want to say early 80s, 70s, basically all the King heavy hitters I've put on the back burner. That's very interesting. That's, that's absolutely fascinating because part of the pleasure of having an author like Stephen King in the universe who's been consistently popular and successful for the past 40-odd years is that I've seen his style change so much and improve in many ways. I think he's a much better writer now than he was back then, and he was a great writer back then as well. So it's going to be interesting for you, I think, to perhaps go a little retro with this. You know, it's, 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 you'll have to let me know. Have you read um, It? Oh, of course. That okay. one, of course, I could not deny. <laughs> Did need to make sure that was priority one. And that was very early in the Stephen King journey of mine. Because after I read Full Dark No Stars, I felt like I had opened the doorway to Oz. And I was like, oh my God, like I had no idea. I had always judged him as just a genre author and never read anything from him in my life. And then after reading that novella collection, my brain exploded with joy. And I asked, I was just going up to strangers almost like, what, what do I do? Like, what, what, what King book do I read? And they're like, oh yeah, you got to read it. And I was like, <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, it took me six weeks. I was a different person after I read it. I really felt like I saw into the greatness of this man. I get it now. The absolute sheer genius of this writer. I'm a little shocked that you 
began with full dark no stars because to for me that is a very dark bitter often quite cynical brutal collection of stories isn't it that there's very little redeeming qualities in a lot of those characters are there but that's that's probably the appeal it's just so i don't know so so it, it's not afraid it's not it's not a, it's not a scared book you know very much so and i think about that all the time like why that one but it was just destiny i think because i just finished grad school i was reading some dense literary stuff anyway that's all i was involved with consumed with so to have a heavy hitter like 1922 grab me by the throat was exactly what i needed to pay attention to king it was what got me off the oh i don't read genre authors you know (laughs) me being a very snobby brat that's what did it so yeah it's actually it's a wonderful wild ride i've had with king thus far but 1922 just those first lines of is it wilbur or wilmer wilbur i think is it i can't remember i'll i'll read it again (laughs) is wilbur the pig from charlotte yes (laughs) i love wilbur Does he live in Ducklington? (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) All I see are just little duckies crossing country roads in my mind. (laughs) Oh, but no, the 1922, it's interesting because that's like the dark side of American literature. It's John Steinbeck, you know, meets Edgar Allan Poe. It's that kind of, so it's got all that literary stuff as well, but also the, the horror to it. It's a very cool choice. Nailed it. That's exactly what I needed. That was what I needed to regard King with the reverence and respect that I had never given him, ever. I was like, oh, he just writes horror. I don't read genre. I'm too cool for school. And then I was like, oh my God, (laughs) who is this man? Who is this incredible man? (laughs) So that's the one that did it for sure. No, absolutely. You actually revealed one of the questions I have a little early, so I kind of want to bump that to the top and let's talk about it. This is my question on the Dark Tower. Of course, yeah. You kind of touched on those feelings, so I want to unpack that a little more because that's a <laughs> that's a hot button, Richard. <laughs> Are you a fan? Yes. Mm-hmm. However, what I will preface that with is we are cut from the same cloth. I do not do fantasy at all. I really don't. And The Gunslinger was very difficult for me, and I don't know if I enjoyed it. However, once I got to Drawing of the Three, then I started to have fun. And then once I got to Wizard and Glass, I'm pretty sold. Yeah, people have told me that it is a bit of a hump at the beginning. But if you can kind of bear with it, then it has rewards. And I, I there are lots of things I really like about the idea of it because i know that the drawing of the three kind of does what the talisman does where it flips between the real world and the fantasy world which i liked in the talisman i really enjoyed that so that's something i'm looking forward to and also uh, i know that father callahan from salem's lot uh have you read salem's lot yes that one i did read because i i love vampires i'm a little goth kid so i did like that one a lot yeah (laughs) I know he reappears in the later Dark Tower books after disappearing from Salem's Lot. I would be quite intrigued to see him again because Salem's Lot, which is probably one we'll talk about later, is, is probably my favourite Stephen King novel of all time. So that's, uh, yeah, I, I will, I will take, make another attempt, perhaps, at the drawing of the three and see where it leads me. So you, you've, you've read all of them, the Dark Tower books? Have not. I have 
just finished Wizard in Glass, which was very mm -hmm. emotional. It's a very emotional book. It's oh, it's it's wonderful. It's pretty fantastic in terms of a western, a love story, this fantasy craziness. So I'm actually going to deviate from canon and I'm going to read the very very last Dark Tower novel, which is Wind Through the Keyhole. Mm -hmm which takes place immediately after Wizard and Glass. So I'm going to read that. And Very cool. Yeah, so I'm gonna, we're going to dabble in some non-canon reading there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's as far as I've got, is the end of Wizard and Glass. So I'm still pretty young on the journey. I have heard that the later novels are post-accident king and they get a little forced, a little contrived there, but I'm in it with these characters. I do enjoy the characters at this point, and I've really let go of all literary snobbiness, like all of the things that I put the microscope with King, I let that all go. So it's really an exercise in like, just read. And I, I have to ask this, because this I ask everybody who's into the Dark Tower this, uh, how bad was, was the film? Bad. Okay. That's what they always say. Yeah. <laughs> so casting was cool. I really mm -hmm. liked casting, but it's just they they oh, they bit off more than they could chew, to put it succinctly. I think that they just had too many ideas and they couldn't execute them properly. But it could be filmed one day, do you think, given uh, the right amount of time and money and everything else? With the right director, which, knock on wood, Flanagan has been tapped, mm -hmm. and that's some exciting news in the community. So I think if it was given the miniseries treatment and we could really make that Western world come to life and these characters were chosen cautiously, I think that it'll work. If we look at this TV series of Lost, I hated how that show ended. <laughs> I, I really did. However, most people say, I just love the characters. I just love those characters so much. And I think that's what will happen with the Dark Tower. We're not going to care where it goes. We just love those people. That's interesting. I, I think it's great that the kind of books that Stephen King writes, books usually that have an epic feel to them, that have a breadth and a scope that is often unfeasible film. I like the fact that we're moving on to a, an era now where long-form television seems to be the way forward. So something like recently the outsider or Lisey's story have been i think much better served by being stretched out into eight-part dramas and rather than kind of rush through it you know and that's why i'm a little worried about the um upcoming salem's lot film because it's uh I, I understand it's quite a short film i think somebody told me it's like 90 minutes long and <gasps> i really shudder at the idea of trying to uh squeeze such a big book in such a tiny little film because that's a film that needs it needs to be a tv series it needs to be an eight-part series in which the thing that always i love about salem's odd is you don't nobody even says a vampire to like page 250 so you need to establish the town you need to establish the city and spend time doing that and these fascinating characters and then bring in slowly all the horror stuff but that's that's how i would make it for Nobody's giving me any money to do that. So <laughs> well, they should. They should. 90 minutes, Richard. Oh, no. I know. You can't even. What are you going to do? <laughs> oh, that. Oh, my cynicism is coming out. I, I really. Yeah. Oh, I, I will refrain. I will refrain. But I'm very, <laughs> I'm very concerned. Very concerned. 
Well, you're, you're, you're very lucky. You're, you're, you're a lot younger than I am. I, I remember um, growing up in the uh, late 80s and uh, Stephen King adaptations would be direct-to-video crap, essentially. <laughs> it would be really, really terrible. You're living through a golden age of Stephen King adaptations at the moment. Lucky you. So enjoy. Right. I am most grateful. Most grateful. <laughs> Although I, I did just watch The Langoliers, which was filmed in 95, and there was some fantastic CGI that's uh, these flying meatball monsters. Directed by my uh, good friend Tom Holland, who was a guest on the show a couple oh, of years dear. ago. Yeah, no, it's, he, he doesn't like it either. When we spoke, he, he's very proud of Thinner, which is I think is a very good adaptation, but he, he knows The Langoliers looks a bit naff these days. Just the end. I think everything else was aging nicely. Well, the, the, the guy's British accent wasn't very good. Yeah, not the best. <laughs> it's not good. Is he not a real one? I think he is a real one, but he's obviously worked in a lot of American films where he exaggerates his English accent a lot like this. <laughs> so, you know, he's English all the time. And it's like, oh, okay, wait. We don't talk like that. <laughs> no, and that's sometimes with British actors when they try and do American. Most of you guys are great at it. Like everybody mm. gets it beautifully, which is a huge feat because there's so many of them. But the ones that break my heart is they talk like American in the 40s, <laughs> yeah. World War II. <laughs> it's just enunciating, isn't it? That's I'm English, an American. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, oh, you sweet lamb. <laughs> <laughs> if it was a World War II broadcast, you'd be a-okay, but... Exactly. Precious. <laughs> it's, rather, it's rather lovely, isn't it? It's quite naive, but lovely. <laughs> I love it. And I'm like, can we be friends? Can we go have some tea and, and we'll chat? Because I, I live in a part of the country where we enunciate everything. We're, I'm in the West, so I'm not quite California, really close to it. Are you, are you north or south up there? South. I'm in the southwest. Towards like uh, San Diego or... Uh, you, you don't have to give your address or anything. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's very hot and very deserty. Oh, okay. I'm with you. No, okay. I'm going to yeah, put the clues together. Absolutely, yeah. Is it a bit like the novel Desperation? Uh, yes. Yes, sir, it uh, is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We pronounce everything, so I think I would be a good resource. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'd compliment your spoken English, but it would sound very patronizing, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> no, I love it. This is too fun, Richard. <laughs> like we're having cocktails, and this is how I would chat with my friend over cocktails. Well, that's awkward, because I think it's nine in the morning where you are. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but it's five o'clock in the UK, isn't it? Oh, yeah, we're all drunk over here already. It's, it's, it's wonderful. We'll be down the pub. <laughs> it's still mimosa time. Exactly. <laughs> One of my favorite drinks. My next question is in regards to Stephen King characters who you feel would be a wonderful candidate for either a sequel or a prequel, much like little Danny Torrance with Dr. Sleep. Is there anybody in the catalog who you feel could get that same kind of treatment? That's a, that's a good question. Yeah, I suppose the temptation would be to take one of King's kid characters and see them as an adult, like with Danny Torrance. The girl from Firestarter might be interesting to see if she's kind of harnessed her powers properly to see if she's actually using those things. I don't think it's a spoiler when I say that the end of Carrie 
does kind of set up the idea that Carrie's powers are hereditary. So you could do a next generation Carrie. What I'd really like to see is Ben Mears and Mark Petrie hunting vampires after Salem's Lot. Ooh, nice. Yeah, because you have that lovely thing where they're a team now and they, they go to Mexico and then they go back to Salem's Lot and burn the place down. And I love the fact that they might like go and do that to other places. I think that's, that's, that's kind of cool. Or, I don't know, it's a stand. Maybe see how society's going there. See what Sue and Franny are up to in Maine on their own. See if they're kind of establishing like another colony. That'd be kind of cool. What, what about you? I'm with you all the way for Charlie from Firestarter. I need to know what happened to her. I just, I need to know. She's mm. nine when the novel ends. That's so little. And my personal hypothesis is that Russia got her. So I really think that she's in Russia for a while. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, my own fan fiction that I've crafted. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would put her in Russia and then have her get out and kind of wreak havoc for a little while, maybe have a bit of a mentor. However, I don't know if you watched the new Firestarter that came out last year. Mm-hmm. I did. I really appreciated the ending of that one because they put Charlie with Rainbird. Mm. And I thought that was really smart because she's not alone like she is at the end of the actual novel. And Rainbird is kind of like this, he wants to kill her throughout the story, but at the end, he's very reverent of her power, very much like kneeling before a destroyer goddess. And so I was really into that. I was really into what they would get up to together. And if he would Mm. protect her and when he passes away, what does she do? No, I I like that idea. I thought that was quite an underrated adaptation, Firestarter. Yeah. It got an an unjust kicking when it came out by the critics. But I like the fact that it was, and I'm going to go completely against what I just said 10 minutes ago. (laughs) I like the fact that it was a big book that they slimmed down to 90 minutes, that it cut the fat and it was, yeah, it didn't waste any time. And Rainbird, again, was very good. But I think George C. Scott played him in the original film which is kind of a little politically incorrect, I think. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> not the smartest choice. And I thought Zac Efron was actually really good. I, I, I'm not really familiar with his work, but uh, he, he did a good uh, tortured performance in that one. So, yeah, be interesting to see where, where she is now. Wholeheartedly agree, especially with that adaptation. I know I wasn't a fan overall, but there were parts I enjoyed. Some mm. of those parts you mentioned, for sure. Yeah, it was... Um... It took some risks. Uh, Not all of them paid off. Yeah. (laughs) John Rainbird is a Stephen King villain that I actually like quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I think that he's very conflicted. And I love this idea of he's very Captain Ahab about it. Like, I need to kill it, but I'm also in complete and utter awe of it. (laughs) And it, yeah, it's very layered for me. And I like it. I like Rainbird. So, speaking of Rainbird. Yes. Who is your favorite Stephen King villain? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Rainbird is great. I didn't really think about him until you mentioned him. He reminds me of that uh, poem by Yeats about the Irish airman foreseeing his own death. And it ends with a couplet, those I, those I serve I do not love and those I kill I do not hate. And he's got that to him that he's not really, he's kind of working for the shop, but he doesn't like them. Yep. And he's meant to like be killing this kid, but he, he loves her and it's this whole I don't know, the whole tangle of um, what is your goal here? What's your objective? What's your motivation? And it's completely mysterious all the way through. A favorite villain? Oh, I'm going to sound like I'm 
banging the same drum over and over again. But Barlow and Straker, I love Barlow and Straker. I think they're a great double act. Yeah. And I, I love them in the TV series as well, where they turn Barlow into this feral Nosferatu type character. Whereas in the novel, he's a very urbane, very Christopher Lee-esque vampire. And I, I like, I think that works both ways. I like, I'm a big fan of cosmic horror, Lovecraftian stuff. So Revival, I think, is a deeply, again, it's a brutal, horrible, dark book. But the, is it like an ant queen or something or a hive mind or just this really, it's the, a mother, isn't it? It's, it's a mother. Mm-hmm. I think it refers to as a mother. Yeah. That is just so unknowable and so you can't do anything with that. Even with like Pennywise, who's like a cosmic character who exists beyond our dimension, you can still beat the shit out of him at the end. Yeah. But with the mother, it's like as soon as you're even touched by knowledge of her or power of her, she has you and you are mad and you are tainted by this thing. No matter. And I, I love Revival because it is about that idea of um, your best intentions and he trying to heal people and trying to do good for them. And it just doesn't work out and it becomes the worst thing by doing the best thing it becomes the worst thing you can possibly imagine uh who else i like stilson from the dead zone i think he's a wonderful example of that kind of oily two-faced absolutely um unctuous unscrupulous politician who is uh, sadly uh, endemic in culture that probably always has been so yeah he's very much of a type so him yeah what about you are you a Randall Flagg kind of girl? I am. I am. Yeah, more I and more, more and more. Although I'm so glad you mentioned Revival. Oh my God, that's one of my all-time favorites. I'm obsessed. I love Revival. It's incredible. And I, I want to call him Charlie Daniels, but I know that's not it. Charlie Daniels is like a singer. But Charles something. Oh man, he's just... I think when King was doing publicity for Revival, he talks about people of faith having further to fall. And so mm-hmm. I just love that. But yes, Randall Flagg, I really enjoy just because I, I guess it just seems very simple that according to King, he's Legion, the Mm. New Testament demon. And so when you just put a name, when you put that in connection with the character, you're like, oh, you're just like a many-faced demon. So it's really like the devil you know. You're like, oh, okay, you're, you are iterations of this new testament evil which is very interesting to me i also love biblical allusions sure i got my minor in religious studies so it's like a a fun thing for me so i really enjoy it cool so i do love randall flag stuff i love all his iterations i love when he's coming out i haven't finished the stand because i'm a terrible person i don't know what happened but (laughs) i got halfway through it and i yeah i love it i one of my favorite scenes is when mother abigail is walking and there's wolves all around mm-hmm. her like i love that i love the Randall flag stuff but i i also he hasn't been quite topped yet big jim runny from under the dome interesting he really makes me very angry and like king did an amazing yet horrible writerly thing where he just lets him live for thousands <laughs> of pages and my murderous rage at the end of reading under the dome was unparalleled i <laughs> I was coming out of my body with rage. I wanted to end this man so much. So Big Jim Rennie is also a villain that when he comes to mind, my fists clench. So that's powerful, I think. 
Well, it's interesting that we, we talked about the villains who are both supernatural and human, and they're both equally chilling in a way. I think Leland Gaunt as well would have to make my top three villains because, again, there's something quite biblical and quite... He's, he's like a, an Old Testament demon, isn't he? He, he? he knows people's weaknesses. And he knows how to probe and knows how to really kind of get to them. So yeah, Leland Gaunt as well is an absolutely terrifying character. Because again, he wants to help you, but he doesn't really want to help you. <laughs> That's the thing with devil stuff. They're they're very easy to understand. Like it's just whatever they say is a lie and mm. they have zero good intentions at all. Like they're out to destroy you. Not a lot of people get this. Yeah. Yeah, so the, yeah, they become the mirror to us, don't they? Yeah. I, I have you got to the bit in the stand with uh, Lloyd Henry, the guy that Flag releases from prison? I think so, yes. I do remember. Because he's an interesting character because he makes a devil's bargain. And later on, he's given the opportunity to kind of get out of it, but he doesn't because he's loyal to his own demon. Oh, yeah. A fascinating bit of King character development. Better the right hand of the devil than in his path. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, he is a kind of a terrible person, Lloyd, but he is also loyal. He still has good qualities, even if they're in a bad service. I need to do a full stand. I mean, <laughs> I, I know it's another taking, but that's another one like it. Absolutely. I need to dedicate months of my life <laughs> <laughs> to uncover the richness. We kind of talked a little bit about characters who don't get a lot of justice or a lot of screen time. Do you have any overall novels or short stories where you love them and you've noticed that people don't like them and vice versa. I know it might be The Dark Tower for you where everybody loves it and you're not quite there yet. <laughs> Are you ever having a conversation with a King fan and they're like, I don't know, I don't feel that way at all. And you're like, what? Yeah, good question. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of The Institute a few years ago. And I know a lot of people really responded to that one. I liked it, but I thought it was a little like King repeating himself because it was those tropes of the the gifted children being put in peril. It's the trope of the the outsider who kind of comes in and he's like a Jack Reacher type character, like a kind of a army. It's like the guy in, um, is it Barbie in Under the Dome? Yes. He seemed like exactly the same character just repeated. So I kind of thought he was just treading water with the Institute, but I was surprised that so many people really liked it. I think it's like a Harry Potter effect. I think probably a lot of people who had read Harry Potter and I missed out on Harry Potter. I was too old. Um, <laughs> Really liked the Institute because it was like kind of the same in a way. So instead of Hogwarts, we have this secretive base and <laughs> it's kind of a little more, you know, R-rated, but it's it's the same. But as to books that I really liked that other people didn't, I thought um, From a Buick 8 is underrated. Yeah, love From Buick 8. Yes. A, yeah, I think when that came out, people just thought, oh, it's, um, it's just another like haunted uh, car story like Christine. But it isn't really. It's actually it's very interesting. And the, the chap who narrates it, I think, is a really interesting character because he's one of those very moral people who has to bend his own morality. A bit like, um, oh, who am I thinking of? Like a lot of King characters, where you start out like a very moral person and you're corrupted slightly. And can you kind of come back from that, you know? So I really like that one. I love Cycle of the Werewolf, which is one a lot of people overlook. Uh, because it's a, it's very short. It's more of an illustrated book than a novel. But I really like that one. I love werewolf stories anyway. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it, I think. Yeah. So glad you mentioned From a Gate. I mm. love that book. That one is deep, 
very deep when you get into the weeds with it and oh yeah it's all the unanswered questions of which there are several in that novel that it's like this is great this is so good of what it's forcing you to do it's not a traditional king reading experience you have a lot of potholes and which i understand a lot of people would be upset by that true but when you take a look back at the painting you're like oh okay so i loved it i love the hell out of you kate very underrated. Yeah, very underrated. It really is. It's kind of a hard sell when I talk to constant readers. They're like, I, ugh. And I'm like, no, there's so much. <laughs> I feel you. I'm in the same camp. Thank you. When it comes to King books, are you a, a rereader? Are you someone who has read them all once or twice? Or are there only a select few that get a reread? Which ones? Uh, it's a good question because um, I when I invite guests onto my show, I, I do kind of say, I let them pick whatever book they think they're most passionate and interested in what they can talk about. So I do reread them when they, when they pick one. So I, I do reread for the show. Uh, there are certain books like It and The Stand that when I was a kid, I would reread over and over and over again. It was like a ritual every like summer holiday. I'd begin a reread of It, you know, wow. like sit in the garden or just like, take it with me everywhere. It was kind of crazy. And just reread it every year, quite a long time. There are some I haven't touched in a long time. Cujo, I'm not in a hurry to get back to. <laughs> uh, it's, it's all right, but yeah. It's just, it's just, it's a shaggy dog story, isn't it? It's, <laughs> <laughs> once, once you know what's going to happen, it's okay. Yeah, the dog's going to, yeah. and the, Yeah, I, I'm not going to spoil it for you because the ending is sure. rather brutal. Yeah. But yeah, no, it, it's something I can come back to over and over again, even if it's just a short story. It's like it can become like a comfort read. There are certain short stories I, I read over and over again, like um, well, anything in Skeleton Crew, Night Shift as well, because not only is it perfectly written short stories, but it takes me back to being young, reading them again. And something like Jerusalem's Lot, I find very comforting because it is, it's not serious. It's just King kicking around the old horror classics of Lovecraft and Poe and saying, this is kind of a fun thing to do, isn't it? To write this balls to the wall, gothic story. It's, you know, don't take it seriously. It's just a bit of silliness, but it's also very scary as well. So yeah. Such great answers. <laughs> Thank you. Is there a Stephen King ending? I know that some constant readers, well, the majority of, of readers that I talk to have no problem with King endings. Like we're all mm -hmm. in it for the journey. We really are. However, sometimes with the giant, giant King books that take us quite a bit of time to complete, are there any King endings where it was so dissatisfying that it kind of tainted the journey as a whole? Uh, yeah, that's a good question because that is the constant accusation that's not so much leveled at King, but used to be leveled at King that he couldn't stick the endings, that it was always a bit of a, always a bit of a fluff, the endings. And I don't think that's true. And um, I don't know if you've spoken to the chap who runs the Kingcast. His recent episodes have been examining just the endings of the book to determine if they're satisfying or not. And that's been really interesting. For me personally, the only one I would say that, not that I found it disappointing, but it left me scratching my head, was Under the Dome. Mm -hmm. Because it's such a book about people and how people react to stress and how people kind of are at their worst and at their best in extreme situations. Then at the end to have these very 
odd aliens pop up who have created this dome and you're not really sure of their intentions whether they're just playing around or whether they're looking at us like an experiment it didn't really work for me but i i know the idea of under the dome is so big and so it's such a lovely idea trap everybody in a dome and see what happens <laughs> but then you can write that but then you kind of do have to explain at the end why there was a dome there it can't just be uh and then the dome disappeared one day and nobody ever saw it again. You have to kind of have an explanation for it. And that was probably the best explanation you could come up with, even though it wasn't particularly satisfying. And because the novel is so long and you spend so long with these characters that you do love them and hate them and appreciate them and get frustrated by them. Then at the end, to do that kind of deus ex machina thing of just saying it was aliens and now it's okay. It was a bit of a cheat, I think. Could not agree more. Could not agree Good. more. <laughs> I, yeah, that was, sometimes when I, when I get that feeling when I read a book and I was like, oh, this ending and it doesn't leave my head. I have to sit down with myself and rewrite it. I actually have mm -hmm. to like rewrite it in my mind. For me, Under the Dome only went down smoothly if I ended it tragically in my head. Yeah, yeah. The the air runs out and everybody yep. dies. Yeah, that's yep. it. Okay, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, that was the only way it was going to work. And I think it, had King done that, I think we would have a very different reflection on that book. I think that it would really have made it cooler. Yeah, it would it would have stood up with the epics like the because I think once they go over a thousand pages, they're in their own category, aren't they? That becomes its own thing, like the stand and it, and which are books that are loved by so many people. And I think Under the Dome just missed out on the opportunity to be another epic. You are so correct. I was reorganizing <laughs> my King bookshelf, of which it's like six tiers and it's completely full. But that's my fault because I buy double sometimes. <laughs> I know we all have our our collections. We constant readers. So I have doubles of Under the Dome, and I was like, I think I'm going to get rid of one just because I don't have the room. And I was like, this is tragic. <laughs> this is tragic. <laughs> this is sad. There's lament there. <laughs> uh, what is the, the prize of your collection? Do you have a first edition already signed or anything uh, particularly to show off? Oh, beautiful question. I wish. So no signed. No first editions that I know of. I probably should be a bit diligent on checking those out. I don't think so, though. <laughs> but I am very proud of the 70s King that I have. I have them all hardback. They're pretty pristine. They look brand new. Nice. A very crisp copy of Carrie and the Bachman books and The Shining. So like the older, older King novels, I'm very proud to have a nice pristine dust jacket on all of them so <laughs> that was a feat that took some time that took some hunting absolutely i do have a couple of first edition neil gaiman's who's my other favorite author in addition Very to impressive. king yeah. i i love that man so much so i am a little bit proud of my gaiman collection but king i'm just happy to have a hardback in almost everything i'm i'm happy to to just look at them <laughs> <laughs> i get it and then my favorites in my top five, I have doubles. Do I need them? No. Do I have them? Yes. And I can't explain why. It's just one of those things. <laughs> no, I love that. Right? I need a bookshelf copy to always be there. And then I need a reader's copy. And then I have paperback. You know, it's, it's a sickness we have. 
<laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> Do you have any treasures in your king collection? Um, yeah, like I said, I got into the habit, I think, in my late teens of buying hardback when they first came out. So I've got a pretty good collection. Um, one, it's not going to be much good on an audio podcast, but um, I've got a copy of Dance Macabre <gasps> here. Oh, in plastic. First edition. Oh, my yeah. God. With uh, Stephen King's signature. <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's it's signed to Deborah, which is me. But uh, <laughs> Still counts. That's cool. <laughs> but no, that's, that's, that's a lovely thing to own. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's something very precious to me. This leads me into a wonderful question. Mm. If you did have the opportunity to get a King title signed, only one, mm. which one would it be? Ooh, I'd probably have to go for something quite rare. So the value would be kind of exponentially increased. <laughs> or I don't know. That's a very good question. What's what my best? I, I still have the original Christine, the book I first read, and I can see it from, I, I kind of um, I framed up the cover and it's on the wall over there. So maybe that one, just to kind of come full circle there, just to, because he looks so young in the photo as well. And it's, it's, like, it's a lovely reminder of being young and silly and, uh, yeah, getting swept away in a story. I love it. I do have a theory that a lot of constant readers choose their very first or the one that they have the fondest memories with. So I support that. And I love Christine. I recently just read that for the first time. I had an absolute ball. And you are so right with the Americana in that. It's super rich, just like post-Vietnam America. And yet that nostalgia for the 1950s, which we see a lot in King works because that's his childhood. Mm. So rich. So, so rich. I love Christine so much. Yeah, it's it's interesting. He does that again in It. It's the idea of the 50s and the 80s. And they're compared and contrasted. Like the, uh, in Christine, it's like, the 50s are the evil thing impinging on the currents and in the other one i suppose it's the same way in it isn't it it's um the unfinished business of the children in the 50s leads to their well eventual fates in the 1980s so it's the idea of which is another recurring theme in king is you can't hide the past and you can't escape from your responsibilities they'll find you out in the end so yeah no it's it, there's so much depth, isn't there? So, so much... powerful. <laughs> have you have you actually written anything academically on Stephen King? Uh, journal articles or and anything like that? What a wonderful question. I wish I've been a little occupied to put the pen to the page in terms of academia. However, I have been working on a kind of panel and PowerPoint, so to speak, about the women of Stephen King. That is a topic that I've really become passionate about over the years, specifically with what King does with victims, villains, and the destroyer goddess. I feel like that archetype is everywhere in King and we're just not paying attention to it. For example, Susanna from the Dark Tower. I know you haven't dabbled too much. Super Dark Goddess. Charlie from Firestarter. Dark Goddess. Like They have crazy powers, much like we see in religious history with these deities of these very powerful females and so i i love exploring that i love talking about these women so that's my academic pursuit is to put this somehow into a digestible panel mm -hmm. so that's what i'm currently working on but for the most part i just like discussing it with other constant readers and what are their observations and 
when we look at a Stephen King female who's a villain like Annie Wilkes, like for me, the novel Misery is a dark fairy tale and Annie Mm. is that monster in the forest. She really is. And so I kind of pick that apart and look at these archetypes with these females. And then I have yet to read Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne. Yes. I haven't read them, but I know what King was doing with that victimized female in the mid 90s. I have read Rose Matter, which is an amazingly underrated book, fascinating. And what Rose represents, what everything that she is, she's like this beacon of light and this victim, but King always allows them to get some spectacular revenge at the end. Mm. And so there's so many throughout his work. So that's like the biggest academic pursuit of mine is the women of Stephen King. I could go on and on, Richard. No, it's a fascinating theory. And I suppose it's, it's worth bearing in mind he was raised by a single mother, wasn't he? So that would have yep. been the, the, the powerful influence of life would, would, have been a, would have been a mother. So yeah, no, I know you should write this down. Right. I think so too. So it's always in the stew pot of my mind. It's always bubbling away. And anytime I encounter a Stephen King female, we've got some juggernauts, right? Like Beverly Marsh is absolutely, mm-hmm. she's just a totem at this point. And when we look at these women, it's just there's so much to say. There's so much to analyze. And what I love about the topic is King is largely regarded as a writer for men. You know, he Mm -hmm. really is. He's a dude writer. He's a male-centric author. And so I need to get in there. I got to get in there and say there's a lot of fascinating stuff here. Yeah. Not a lot of people have explored yet. What do you make of um, Holly Gibney? Because I know this is a character that King kind of returns to and seems to be obsessed with at the moment. How, how does she kind of fit in? Because she's not a maternal figure. And I don't know, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because we've seen her grow as a character, which is something we don't really see in King novels, like from book to book. Are you a fan? <laughs> not at first. Not at mm. first. Yeah. So when I read Mr. Mercedes, you know, Holly is just there in the background. She is. And then when she's there again in Finders Keepers, I'm like, what's going on? Then by the time we get to end of watch, I was like, all right, I, I think I understand what he's doing with her. And what she represents is someone who's healing. Mm. We see her at her lowest, most manic and tortured reality. And then King sort of allows her to heal and find friendship and community. And so I clung to that. In terms of how interesting her character is, I don't know if there's a lot there. We have a little bit of family. We don't really have a lot of romantic stuff going on. She's somebody who's been tortured by a lot, like complicated childhood, lots of substances, whether she chose them or not. And she's just, you know, a chain smoking little computer hacker when we meet her. And then she starts to grow into this woman who finds balance and healing and community. And I really appreciated that. Once I started to pay attention and stop being bratty, like, oh, why is she here again? I don't care about her. (laughs) Because, you know, she's not the she doesn't have a lot of razzle-dazzle, you know? She doesn't have a lot of memorable aspects sure. to her. So by the time we get to where we are with the outsider, I was like, okay, all right, like, this is his lady. He's really focusing on her, so I'm going to focus on her. And I think after a while, I did become a fan because I'm fascinated with what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I may be more of a fan of the process rather than the actual character, 
but what she represents for me, it speaks louder. So I, I think I do enjoy her quite a bit because of what he's doing. I know what you mean. It's 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 very rare for Stephen King to um to write sequels to his books. So you, you're often you have characters once and then you don't see them again. And when it does when he does do that, it's something like The Shining and Doctor Sleep, where there's such a, a massive change between those two characters. Like Danny is a boy and Danny is a man. And the same with the kids in it and the adults in it. There's such a quantum leap in their characters that you don't often see like a subtle progression like Holly. And it is quite a subtle progression from book to book. She becomes healthier and more rounded, probably in the way that people write characters. The first time you write a character, it's quite blank and it's quite featureless, but then you add to it and you kind of make them more rounded. And I think it's a fascinating literary experiment. I don't know if I'd be happy if you just wrote Holly Gibney novels from, that. from now on. That would be quite disappointing, but it's interesting <laughs> that he's, he's doing this as a writer, I think. Since we segued into the ladies of Stephen King, my next question for you, Richard, is if you have a favorite Stephen King female. Mm, it's a good question. I, I, I think, um, oh, yes. Annie Wilkes, I think, is, is, is absolutely uh, fascinating, isn't she? Because yeah. I love her isolation. I love the fact that she's retreated back into this place and she doesn't really need anybody except for this fantasy world she's created in the Misery novels. And it's so unexpected and so surreal that Paul Shelton should even show up one day, that anybody should show up one day at a, at a remote cabin. But then it's like the man that she is obsessed with or obsessed with his creation. Yeah, I, I love the fact she's so self-sufficient and so, I don't know, that she doesn't really care about fitting in with anybody, that she hates society, that she hates the people around her. And the only thing she loves is this, bizarre victorian pastiche fantasy <laughs> dream world it's such an odd connection of things doesn't it you know because she's kind of a puritan but she's also a psychopath so you've got this wonderful dissonance in her head yeah she's the one i think sticks with me the the longest i love it she oh she's fascinating and when i think about Annie, she's just a monster for me. But I, I really get, based on what you said, a, like a huge Phantom of the Opera vibe, like mm. dreaming and yearning for beauty. And that's what the Paul Sheldon novels give to her, maybe. She's an ogre and insane. And <laughs> there's something about reaching for... Very Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. Very Quasimodo. Like the ugliness. You seek beauty so I desperately. Think, yeah, you're very right to call it a fairy tale because it does have so many aspects of a fairy tale rather than a straight horror novel. And I think it was probably one of the first King novels that didn't have a supernatural element to it, that didn't have vampires or telekinetic kids or even like rabid dogs. It was just like a, a woman who, had, who was mad, a woman who was just, you know, crazy. And I think that's really a really interesting book in terms of his progress as a writer. Totally. I love discussing Misery so much, and but oh my god, Richard, I barely survived reading it. I almost <laughs> shat myself with terror. Like, I can't explain how terrified I was. It was the most, it's the most genius King book ever, I feel like. I've never felt fear like that reading mm. ever in my life. I was 150 pages in, of which it's a 300-page book. I was about to give up. I was like, I can't. I'm going to throw up. I can't. I am so scared of this book. I'm so glad I made it. Yeah. And now it's just so fascinating to pull apart. It is. I know people mock 
Stephen King somewhat because a lot of his protagonists are writers. But I think he is saying something very interesting about the process of writing in these characters. People like Mike Noonan in Bag of Bones, I think, is yeah. a really interesting guy because it's a very good book, not just a very good ghost story, but it's a very good book about writer's block, about what if your creative juices run out. And the same with Paul Sheldon, because you know it's it's somewhat obvious, but you can see how he would relate to this guy who's stuck writing one genre and people expect this one thing over and over again, but he's like, no, I've got like other books in me, different books in me that I have to get out. So he's one of the, I think, one of the best writers who talks about writing and being a writer than any other author I can think of. There's also, you reminded me, there's some Dark Goddess stuff in Misery because Paul mm -hmm. is reaching out to Scheherazade. So there's like a little bit of A Thousand and One Nights in there and how she had to write, she had to make a story, otherwise she would be killed. And he really channels Scheherazade and takes misery to the dark bowels of Africa, very heart of sure. darkness. And there's a lot of awesome stuff in there that was just so fascinating for me, so rewarding for surviving yes. that grisly novel. Because Annie Wilkes herself is like a, a dark goddess, isn't she? Absolutely. And she demands sacrifice. She demands Yep. Paul's first book, this hot rod, this, this kind of book about car thieves that he's written. She demands it to be a burnt offering to her so that he can get back to worshipping her through writing this, this book that she demands. You know, it's, there's a lot going on there. Oh, you nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> oh, so good. So, so good. We have made our way through quite a bit here. I love it. We're going to do a fun one now. Go for it. If you were to be stuck in a Stephen King setting, where would you choose to be stuck? And it could be the frightening route or it could be the enjoyable route. Mm, that's a good question. We're going back to what I was saying earlier. I like Bag of Bones a great deal. And I like the idea of having that lake house on the shore. I think it, it's a remarkable metaphor for Mike Noonan's kind of grief and it to kind of be out there on his own in this haunted location. I think it really works well. And he, he makes it sound so beautiful. But then again, I'd also like the Overlook Hotel. I'd like to, I don't know, it, it sounds horrible, but I, I'd quite enjoy being a winter caretaker at the Overlook Hotel. You know, I, I wouldn't want to kill my family or anything, but just like, <laughs> it'll be like going up there and you can't like, uh, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no cell service. You could just go up there and write and read books and, snowshoe and ski and just goof around in this beautiful incredible natural location so yeah i'd i'd, I'd take the job i'd be okay i think i'd take it too i think it would be yeah. very very nice minus the ghosties well yeah i'm always impressed by like uh dick hallerahan talking about all the food i think oh that's brilliant i could yeah I could eat all of this, <laughs> this is, i don't have to go out and shop i could there's a food here there's a nice fire it's it's wonderful yeah just take a as long as you don't run out of books, you'll be, you'll be fine. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it would be great. I, I would be into it. Have you made it to the Stanley yet in Colorado? No, I'm going to Colorado in a couple of months for the <gasps> SCMS, the Society of Cinema and Media Studies Conference in Denver. I think it's Denver. And yeah, I'm looking forward to that because, yeah, King said a lot of stuff in Colorado. Uh, you got The Stand and The Shining, of course. I did actually look into staying at the Stanley, but it's booked up 
so far in advance and no the expensive i but know yeah one day even if i just go there and visit even if i just sure. go there and see it yeah that would be lovely absolutely i think i'd chicken out actually like <laughs> <laughs> i'm very very reverent of like haunted locations mm. all of these ghost tours i'm like nope nope no thank you <laughs> i'm very i believe in it i really do believe in stuff hanging around so I'm also a very vulnerable little unicorn spirit. I struggle, I think most creatives struggle with staying sunny and not getting too low. And that's my greatest fear is like some mm. sort of possession of some kind that would start to suck the life out of me. Have you ever uh, seen a ghost? Have you ever had a, a supernatural experience? Yes and no. My university, well, it's one of those where it's like I questioned myself to the point of that couldn't have been real. However, True. very well, it could have. My university was surrounded by three cemeteries. And yeah, I used to walk in the cemeteries because they're very quiet and it's a nice place to study and there were good trees. I get it. Yeah, and I always felt very serene and very peaceful. However, there were a couple nights where I would go to sleep listening to my Walkman, my CD player. You remember those? I had an old one. I'm very, very retro, very old soul. I love like <laughs> old tech. And I felt like something was pressing into my hand. It was very cold all of a sudden. All of the, the traditional things felt very sad, like I was about to cry, very cold. And I was like, I don't like, I don't, I don't know about this. And then just learning about all the people that had died, what the land was before it became a university. And I was like, this is awful. Okay, so unknown. Unknown if it was real or just my imagination. I, I really, really talked myself into logic as best as possible but i just am very sensitive emotionally mm. and so i like to be able to have those strong boundaries up like you know i i am very respectful of this ghost's space and i do not want to interrupt them or bother them <laughs> so however like what's interesting though is my favorite horror films are like the possession ones those are my favorite ones because I do feel if I was in a haunted house location, I think I'd be okay. I really mm -hmm. do. Like, I think that I would have the right frame of mind, the right spiritual frame of mind where I'm like, okay, this is, we're going to be fine. That's probably why I love Flag so much. I don't think I'm afraid of him. Yeah, exactly. Because he, he just offers you a deal. Yeah. And if you don't take the deal, it's like, uh, there's not much you can do, really. It's, uh... Yeah. So I feel I'm, I would be okay. But I, I'm only okay because of that respectful distance. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I think, yeah, whether whether you believe or not, respect is always a good place to start from, isn't it? Yeah. So the Stanley, I respectfully decline because <laughs> <laughs> I know it's just been associated with so much, you know, it's just been creepy, creepy to the point where I am convinced that there's something there. There's definitely mm -hmm. something that I am not strong enough to withstand a night's stay. <laughs> Certainly not a room 237. Anyway. Oh, God. God in heaven, no. <laughs> I would just, I wouldn't sleep. I would just be on the brink of pissing myself all night and like every creak or crack. I would, I, yeah, I'm just a little fraidy cat in that way. And I respect <laughs> this about myself. And yeah, it's really interesting being a King fan. That's for sure. Oh, bless you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, have, you, have you actually been um, like physically felt fear reading one of his books? A thousand percent. Oh, yeah. Misery was very difficult for me. And one you just mentioned, Bag of Bones. 
yeah, I heard your episode on Bag of Bones. I know that was a very emotional. The the ending is, um, <sighs> yeah, it's it's a mitre. Yeah, it's a tough one. I am scarred, Mister Shepherd. I am <laughs> scarred, and that is just interesting. It's it's one where I, when I think about that book, I'm like, oh my god, the power of this story and this writing and this darkness and that evil. And I'm like, ah, I I can't go back. I can't go back. Mm-hmm. Only if I was paid, which is terrible. <laughs> it was such an emotional hellscape for me, and. And I'm so sad about it because I love Rebecca. Like Daphne du Maurier mm-hmm. is one of my favorite novelists ever. I'm a huge fan. And King is channeling Rebecca. And I was like, oh my God, this is the best book ever. This is going to be amazing. And just the depths he went with that. Yeah. Really shook me up very bad. I think about Bag of Bones and there's like a shudder. There's like an absolute shudder when it comes to that. And I, that's new. That's very new. Everything else has been a very cool suspense ride. Pet Cemetery shook me up really bad as mm, well. The very the end. Wendigo Walk. Uh, oh, that bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those are the only books that I have had a visceral reaction to, like a physical reaction. Pounding heart, felt sick, felt absolutely panicked. And yeah, those are <laughs> the ones I survived. <laughs> <laughs> Do I love these books? I do. Of course, yeah. (laughs) But I was shocked at the reaction they caused in me. Mm -hmm. I can imagine, yeah. What about you? Uh, No, not for a Stephen King book. I've never actually been frightened by a Stephen King book. That's good. It's The only book I can think of that I've ever had a visceral reaction of fear to is an English writer called Graham Masterton, who was one of those 80s writers who England produced to try and untopple Stephen King. So like James Herbert or Sean Hudson. And he wrote a book called Prey, which was set on a hotel in the Isle of Wight. And it was uh, a reinterpretation of Lovecraft's Dreams in the Witch House, which has got a little rat demon in it called Brown Jenkin. Yeah, it's really creepy. And for some reason, that book really frightened me. And I was probably about 18 or 19. I I probably wasn't a child, but it just really scared the hell out of me. But King, no, I love his work. And... I love the the way he creates atmosphere, but I've never actually been frightened to uh, to carry on. Yeah, but I suppose the nearest I came to go back to something we were saying earlier would be the ending of Revival, just because it's so unexpected and it's so bloody bleak, yeah. so hopeless that it's like, oh God, are you going to end the book like this? Is this a, really? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that, that one. Yeah, I read that. I remember reading that and having to read it again for like last 20 pages just to make sure I hadn't missed anything and I hadn't. It was literally that depressing. It was, wasn't it? God, that is one of the most, oh man, that King ending. (laughs) But I love that book so much. Oh, me too. Such great themes, such great themes in that one and such beautifully written characters. Absolutely. That one's a top fiver for me. Me too. All right, my friend, sneaking along down to the question about chatting with non-King readers in your life. Mm-hmm. Do you have the odd friend who says, I'm not a King fan at all, but if I were to read one, where should I begin? What is your process for recommending a title to a non-King reader? I suppose the thing about Stephen King is that people who don't read still have a cultural awareness of Stephen King. 
because he is so well represented in film and TV and comic books and everything else that even if they don't read or are not sure where to start, they will probably say something like, but I, I really liked uh, the look of Pennywise or something like, oh, you know, I really, it's, it's um yeah, I would suggest probably starting with something like the Dead Zone. Because I think the Dead Zone is a very encapsulated book. It's very simple plot line and it's got a bit of everything. So you've got the supernatural stuff about the precognition. You've got the serial killer stuff with uh, Frank Dodds. You've got the very sweet relationship between Johnny Smith and his girlfriend. And you've also got the, the kind of political assassination stuff. So there's a lot of things going on there. And it's very easy to read. It's very, the way it's written is very, it's very quick. And it, and the characters, it doesn't get bogged down too much in other stuff, you know? And Johnny Smith is a very likable character. He's a very open, honest, friendly guy. And you really feel sorry for him because he, he didn't really, he didn't really like just wander into the situation. He's, he's a complete child of fate, you know? And uh, yeah, I, I like that one a lot. Oh, so great. Such a great recommend. Yeah. Oh, Johnny broke me, I tell you. <laughs> Such a tragic character. Sweet guy. He's a sweet guy. Yeah. I always reference his date with Sarah at the carnival is probably one of my favorite King moments with a couple. It's just so good. It's just so yeah. good. I'm a huge romance fan. Let me preface that. Good romance. So... <laughs> I barely read any because there's not a lot out there. Sure. That's what a brat I am. (laughs) But sometimes when you get those real falling in love moments with characters that is so genuine. And I felt I always love the dead zone for that. I think it's such Mm. a powerful love story in there. Yeah, he's he doesn't make a big deal of the romance that he writes, does he? But when he does it well like Ben and Bev in It, I think it works beautifully. It, it's not too overdone, you know? That gloriously leads me into my next question, inquiring if you do have a favorite Stephen King couple. This could be a romantic traditional couple, or it could also be a bromance or a friendship, a duo in the Stephen King canon. Who is your favorite? I, I, I really like the interplay between Bill and Holly in the Finders Keepers End of Watch, Mr. Mercedes trilogy. Again, because we're watching, as we discussed before, we're watching Holly become more fully rounded as a person in the same way that we kind of watch Bill become less of a person because he's winding down, he's getting old and he's feeling, you know, the strain of being ill and old and um, getting near the end of his watch. And I liked the relationship between the two because it seemed very reciprocal. Like he was passing along everything he knew to her to strengthen her. And she was like giving him this reason to kind of carry on, to kind of give him initially somebody to care for and then somebody to care for him towards the end. So I love that because it's kind of like a father-daughter thing, but it's also like a, a relationship of equals as well. I really like that one. Oh, that's great. I haven't heard that yet, but that's so true. It really, really is a nice bond they have. And I think we need to explore that more for sure. So, oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. (laughs) I do want to talk about film a little bit, as you do on your show. As you kind of talked about earlier, there's a lot of not so great adaptations out there. And we just Mm -hmm. suffered through them as King fans. (laughs) Do you have any favorite films or 
series adaptations that you feel just like, oh, this is great. This is awesome. Well, like I said, I was very impressed with Lisi's story, mainly because, and again, this is one of those divisive books. I didn't like the book very much. It's written in this very contrived vernacular that you either think is charming or like me, you find quite annoying. <laughs> and it uh, it worked a lot better as a TV show. You're out of Lisey's head a lot and you see other characters and you see what they're about rather than just seeing them through her lens, which is quite, I don't know, just quite off-putting in a way. I really love The Shining, the Kubrick original. You can't get away from that film if you're talking about Stephen King adaptations. It's it's a perfect film in a lot of ways. And I know King doesn't like it, but to me, it just works so well as a film, as a ghost story, as a haunted house story, as a story about domestic abuse. I think it works really well. Uh, an underrated one I always recommend is The Night Flyer, based on the short story from, I think, Night Shift, but a vampire who has a plane. And it, the film itself is a very funny satire on news media. It's probably dated a bit now because it was set during the 1990s, but it's a very sweet film and the special effects are very good. Uh, anything else? It Chapter 1 I really liked. It Chapter 2 not so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the original Salem's Lot TV series is very good. I, I love that one because it's it's kind of quite cheesy in a way because it's like a 70s TV movie of the week, but it's also genuinely frightening in places and has James Mason giving a great performance as... Um, Straker. What about you? What's your favorites? In all caps, mm -hmm. Storm of the Century. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yep. Very underrated. Oh my God. I have seen it so many times and I, lo I love it so much. I just feel my whole body light up when I talk about Storm of the Century. <laughs> it's perfection to me. It just really is. In terms of the film, that's my favorite series, bar none, mm -hmm. Storm of the Century. I'm like the little nerd kid where I have the script in front of me and I'm just reading <laughs> along and writing notes. I'm just such a fangirl. A film's, oh gosh, when this movie starts, like the credits start rolling, I'm automatically crying and that's The Green Mile. Oh, yes. Beautiful. And then Shawshank, of course. It's just, course. It's, it's perfect. It's perfect. Frank Darabont just makes magic with those mm -hmm. two features. So those i i don't watch them often because they're so powerful for me that i'm just weeping on my couch for a while <laughs> and i get nothing done i'm just there in like a bubble of tears which i love that cathartic experience with films and tv i just i love crying at things not sure. to say i love crying but like <laughs> it just means it's working it's translating that art is moving me to the point where i can't think about anything else and i'm just there sobbing and then I really love Lisey's story. I actually mm, really thought that was good, fantastic. I loved it. Yeah, it was dark and captured that wild book. And I really enjoy Lisey's story as a book because it, it's such a puzzle for me. And so I I'd read it a couple of times. And once I read it, if you make it through the first time and you could give it a second read, it's, it revealed itself much more on the later readings. And so I was able to latch on and be like, this is bonkers. And I like it. <laughs> it's like a Pink Floyd album, you know, you're just, <laughs> you're in it. You're like, this is weird. <laughs> this is very upsettingly crazy. I'm just going to hang out here because, and that's what Lisey's story is. And I really started to like it after a repeat read. It is one I, I 
be, I've been promising myself I'll, I'll give another chance to you, I'll, I'll, particularly after watching the TV series. I loved it. The TV series was just beautifully done. I love the casting. I love Booyah Moon, what they did with that and what they did with the really cerebral elements in the book with like the hollyhock ship and what's going on inside her sister's mind. Great. It was a perfect way to bring that bonkers novel to life. So mm. very, very pleased with it. But I feel I watched it with my boyfriend who did not read the novel and he liked it, but he's like, I don't get it. Like, it's, sure, it's, <laughs> it's cool to look at. But I think that series is 1000% for readers of the novel. And I felt so honored by that. <laughs> oh, this is the reward at the end of the slog is we get this fantastic adaptation that captures everything quite nicely. Well, I think he did write the adaptation himself, I think, if memory serves. So that explains it. I know it's a very... Um... It's a very personal novel for him because it is directly about Tabitha and their relationship. And again, that yeah, it's uh, one I like the idea of a lot <laughs> rather than the book itself. But carrying on from your question, are there any films or TV series that haven't been made yet of any books that uh, you would like to see? Beautiful question. I really, really, really am dying for a wonderful Joyland adaptation. Mm -hmm. I think Joyland would be extraordinary. I love that book so much. It would just be so bright and colorful, which I gravitate to. I would love a Joyland just making that theme park. And oh, I want it so bad. And then Duma is so near and dear to yes. my heart. And so all the art in Duma, there's so much art. Mm. I love it. There's just so much talk of drawing and all the paintings and the museum exhibit in Duma. I'm like, please, we need a beautiful miniseries. Or I think we could even do a film if we edited out a lot of like the Elizabeth Eaths like stuff, which I mm. don't want to do, but it could be adapted. It could be accomplished. And so I can't wait to get like a talented artist to recreate all of these paintings that are referenced in the book and on the American hardcover, the dust mm. jacket, which is so cool. So I'm such like a visual art nerd that I need <laughs> Duma. I am salivating for Duma to be mainstream. That is my main sermon that I preach quite often. It's my soapbox. I'm like, have you read Duma Key? I'm almost like a, a manic street preacher about it. And who, who do you see playing uh, Edgar Fremantle? Oh, this is amazing. I, I don't know. <laughs> I really would love a, a seasoned salt and pepper, maybe a Kiefer Sutherland. I have a little crush Ooh, on him. Work. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Yeah. The audiobook, his name, uh, he's from Mad Men. And of course, I'm blanking on his name. But oh, John Slattery. There you go. He'd be good. He would. He would. And so... There were times when I listened to, I simultaneously listened to the audiobook and read at the same time for mm. maximum cerebral digestion. <laughs> and so I was picturing John Slattery when I think of Edgar sometimes. That's recently, and I, I was thinking of Brian Cranston. Yes. I think he's got that kind of gravitas and that kind of slightly kind of wounded quality to him. I think he'd be very good. But yeah, I'd love to see a film of that because it's such a visual thing, isn't it? It really is. Oh my God. And just the beach of Duma Key and the Elizabeth Eastlake house. It is such a perfect Gothic novel for me. It's just perfection and setting is everything. I adore it more than I can explain. <laughs> we need to get it on film. Agreed. <laughs> We're nearly done here, which is very sad, but I do need to let you get back to your life. Bless your heart. <laughs> 
can't just be my friend forever. <laughs> I do want to ask you about, this is sort of the ultimate, let's talk about your top three or your top five. Mm -hmm. How did they get there? Okay. Yeah. Some of them are just legacy picks from reading them as a kid and just keeping them with me forever. And Salem's Lot is definitely up there for that because like you, I, I love a good vampire novel and probably like you, I also find that there aren't that many good ones. So when you do find one that really works, that all the pieces move properly in it, that it, it, it is a thing of beauty. And it's also, again, another one of those novels that I kind of read as a kid and I thought this is a brilliant vampire book. And then when I reread it as an adult, I reread that one probably more than any other Stephen King novel. I kind of think this is a great book about small towns. This is a great book about secrets. This is a great book about interpersonal relationships in places where you don't have many options, you know? And that's what really kind of, I really enjoy about that book is, is the sequences between the main narratives just called, I think they're just called the town. And it's like four of these different sequences where they look into the lives of the people who live there and all their secrets and petty jealousies and all their, you know, loves and, and requited loves and those sequences they don't even mention vampires but it's so beautifully written i really like that one so salem's lot yeah revival again just because it was such a a punch in the gut at the end just because i really liked the characters both of them i, I thought they were great there and the way they played off each other um the preacher and the the boy i've forgotten his name but um jamie morton that was it. And going through with him through the depth of addiction, I thought was really good. And then seeing him like fight back against that and reclaiming his life. And then just at the end, it's like, oh, it means nothing. It's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you quit drugs. It doesn't matter if you turn your life around. It means nothing. Which oh, I thought yeah. Was a wonderfully horrible sucker punch. I'd probably have to choose either the it or the stand because you've got to have an epic in there. Uh, probably it, just because it's a bit fresher in my mind at the moment. Yeah. And um, it's. I did an interview with Andy Stanton, who's a kids book author for my podcast, about it. And normally my podcasts go for about an hour, and uh, that one went for two hours. And then he emailed me a week later and said we didn't really talk about a bunch <laughs> of stuff. So we ended up doing a two-parter epic on it because there is so much in there. Oh yeah. And again, it's that thing like with Salem's Lot. It's a bit between the narratives where you get the history of Derry, where it becomes like a fully realized place, where the, the actual location of it becomes such a big, important character. So that one as well, that's three. I don't know if I have to choose a couple more. Bag of Bones, probably, because I love, I love a ghost story. And like you were saying earlier, it's such a weird blend of very subtle Victorian ghost story that goes horribly grim towards the end. You know, I, I love that one. And if I had to pick another one, it would be, I don't know. I, I want something quite recent. No, I've done a revival. Um, the Shining. Again, The Shining is another one that I come back to over and over again because it's so, it's so raw and it's fascinating. This is something I've talked about on my podcast to think that King writes so beautifully about a man who is driving off a cliff because of his addictions and knows he should be doing better. While at the same time, King himself was still drinking heavily and not dealing with addictions, but he has such clarity about how tragic Jack Torrance's life is. And you wonder if he's writing that to keep him from 
thinking about that in his own life, whether he's like putting it all on the page rather than dealing with not the tragedy of Jack Torrance, but the tragedy of Stephen King, which eventually, of course, he did manage to turn around. And it's, uh, it's fascinating, like you say, to read post-addiction stuff and post-accident stuff and pre-accident stuff to see kind of the differences between the two. So, yeah, that's probably it. Shining. Oh, great list. Terrific <laughs> list. So good. Yeah, Shining is, I definitely need to reread. I have read that one because that one's mm-hmm. just essential. Yeah, it's wonderful. I do enjoy the Kubrick film. I really do like it a lot, actually. But when I think about the redeeming arc that Jack has at the end of the novel, I'm like, no, (laughs) (laughs) no, it hurts me. But I get it. I get it. Kubrick went for the cinematic punch. (laughs) Exactly. Did quite well for him. It's iconic. It's an absolute tremendous film. It's huge. But Jack's redeeming moment with the boiler, it's it's everything. Like it absolutely mm-hmm. makes the book. It makes everything, and it makes Doctor sleep. Like it makes mm. the whole. Oh my god, it's just such a huge, huge thing that wasn't put in. And so, well, that's why I think the film of Doctor Sleep is so important because it reconciles Kubrick's film and King's novel. It kind of synergizes the two and gives the best of both of them in this beautifully cinematic ending that also has the heart of the book you know that has danny like understanding his father a lot more which i think is very cool i agree 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 Mm. agree we have answered all the fun questions even though i just want to chat with you more i have to uh now extend the invite for you to come on my podcast I accept. Thank you very much. Well, think, <laughs> think, think about what book or adaptation or short story you want to talk about. And uh, yeah, we'd love to have you on in the next couple of months. Oh my God. I'd love that. Here's the thing though. I won't be able to decide because I'd spin <laughs> out. It might have to be dealer's choice. You might have to give me okay. homework because I am forever a student. So I'll just see it as homework and then I will do it and I will be there and ready to chat. Well, We've, we've touched on the fact that there's still a few of the, the main canon you haven't looked at yet, which I think is fascinating. So we'll, we'll talk about a few of those options and go for a real Stone Cold classic. That'd be perfect. That'd be perfect. Before we head out of here, Mr. Mm-hmm. Shepard, can you tell our listeners where they can find more of your work, where they can access it? Sure. The Constant Reader podcast is available from wherever you get podcasts from. Uh, we've got it's probably already come out now, but our next episode is an interview with Ali Wilkes. Not Annie Wilkes, as I've been saying, but <laughs> Ali Wilkes, who wrote a book last year called All the White Spaces, which was to do as Antarctic exploration and ghosts and obsession. And she's going to be talking about Survivor Type, which is an infamous, oh. gruesome slice of early king. So we're looking forward to that very much. I've also got another special guest in a couple of months that I can't tell you about just yet, but he is intrinsically involved. I'm trying to be very careful here. Intrinsically involved with a King film adaptation that is coming out this summer. (gasps) Very exciting. So I can't confirm that yet, but please watch this space. I also host and produce a podcast called Hallowed Histories, which is about folklore in East Anglia, which is... uh, a remote part of England where I live that covers Cambridgeshire, Norfolk, uh, Suffolk, and Nottinghamshire. So that's uh, little ghost stories and little bits of true crime there. So please feel free to check it out. Oh my God, I'm going to check it out. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm going to have to pick your brain about druids. I'm really, yeah, okay. really into them. I need someday I'll get back to making my own creative compositions. Yeah. I am super into druid stuff and need to learn more. Need to do some creative research. So I might have to ask you Very for cool. some resources. Okay. Yeah. I'm writing an article at the moment. Hopefully that'll be published in the 14 times about standing stones and druids and uh, 1780s cinema. So I'll, 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 uh, I'll let you know when that comes out. It's very cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh, please do. Yes. I was in Ireland for the very first time last year, last January, and I'm very, very reverent and respectful of the fairy folk. And I was mm -hmm. very cautious wherever I would step because I don't want a fairy child. Yeah. Red caps. God, yeah, no. Did you watch this film, Unwelcome, that came out a couple of weeks ago about the the fa the couple they they inherit a, a manor in Ireland and then they're terrorized by goblins? <gasps> I have not. It's terrible, but you'll love it. Okay, what's it called? One more time. <laughs> Unwelcome. Unwelcome. Yeah, it's real. Like if you did not ask the fairy's permission to build or the fairy child or changelings, that is terrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple hundred years ago, you have a fussy, terrible baby and they stole your kid, in theory. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Well, this is, uh, this is the United Kingdom. You're never more than 10 meters away from a druid or a goblin. This is, uh, <laughs> this is the beauty of living here. It's wonderful. <laughs> the UK is one of my favorite places to visit because I'm obsessed with tea, as we talked about earlier. So <laughs> I will have to visit. I'm thinking about late October. I might make it out to London. So very cool. Well, let me know. We'll uh, we'll go to Crouch End, which <gasps> was the setting for one of King's uh, best short stories, Crouch End, that I talked about with Lauren Jane Barnett a few months ago. And her book, I'm just going to plug her book, just came out. Deathlines. Uh, she sent me a copy of it. A walking London horror history. So if you're coming to London, get this book. Absolutely, will do. Oh, this has been so terrific, Richard. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure's all mine, and I shall be in touch to get you on the Constant Reader podcast. Oh, I'm so excited. Yay. <laughs> Take care, my dear. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you all so very much for listening to my interview with Stephen King podcaster Richard Shepard. Isn't he totally magical? I'm such a fan. I'm so grateful he puts forth the work he does. We need more academics in the world of Stephen King fans because the more of us there are, the better. Everyone, please make sure you subscribe to the Constant Reader podcast and stay tuned for my appearance on the show where Richard and I discuss a huge and highly favored Stephen King text, so keep your eyes and ears out for that one. I am looking forward to it. Coming up in the next few weeks, we're going to plug into some Stephen King fantasy. The next title in the queue will be 1987's Eyes of the Dragon. We're going to go for it, and immediately after, we're going to take a look at 2022's Fairy Tale. So it will be a hefty helping of King Fantasy, which should be lovely. I don't read a lot of fantasy unless it's Neil Gaiman, so it should be an education. I have never read either title before, so I'm ready for it. Bring on the magic and creatures and new worlds. That's all I have today, dear ones. Please review and share the show if you haven't already. 
And if you haven't yet said hello, please check in with us on the socials and make sure you write in at underratedsk at gmail, where I'm checking early and often. I would love to chat with you and discuss where you're listening from, talk about some past episodes, and hear any recommendations you have, so please say hi whenever. It's always wonderful to engage with all of you. Until next time, my friends, stay safe out there and take care. Bye-bye.